for the scores and scores of children that you've entrusted to us in the profound and mostly impossible task of imparting the words and ways of the Savior to them. We give you thanks and ask, please, please, give us more of you. Let more of you show up and more of us so that our little ones grow up trusting you with all they've got, knowing that like the apostles, like those disciples who when questioned if they were leaving would say, where else would we go? You're the one who has the words of eternal life. We come this morning because we want to believe that. We have nowhere else to go. Prove us true this morning as we say that. We know we're the kind of people who have been actively trying to secure a sense of worth for ourselves by what we're able to achieve or accumulate. We're sorry about that. We're foolish. Our God allergies act up sometimes, so we're asking you, please, convince us we don't need to do that. Convince us that you're truly the one who satisfies our desires with good things. Come, Lord Jesus, be among us today. Amen. On Friday morning, I had a privilege. I was asked to, well, I wasn't asked on Friday morning. I was fulfilling the request on Friday morning as I went to chapel at Covenant College and spoke to all the willing participants in chapel who were there because they loved me, not because they were coerced. Okay, that's facetiousness. They were there because they were coerced. Maybe they loved me, I don't know. But they were there. And... A remarkable thing happened after the talk. I was still living. The responses of many students were very heartening to me, assuring me that that Jesus had indeed answered my prayers such that I had the opportunity later to respond to some buddies that I'd asked to pray for me and said, I was stunned by two things. One, by just how angry, frightened, discouraged I was just an hour before the talk because I could not figure out how to order my thoughts. And two, just how Jesus ordered my thoughts while I was standing there talking as if he might have had something to do with it. But it's important for me to tell you this because I received a warm reception for the things I said, and I was really grateful for it. Someone said, I know you don't live on praise, and I said, yes, I do. (laughs) Don't let the humble have it fool you, man. I like praise as much as the next guy, probably more. But you know what I need to tell you, though, because it's the last and latest in the line of me living my life in such a way that I hope by doing certain things well enough that I can make people think really good things about me. And maybe I can feel like something. See, just 30 minutes before I went on at Covenant, I was over at Lula Lake where I'd been the previous two and a half hours praying, puzzling, cussing, being angry, having my heart feel like it was going to jump out of my chest, being fearful and so frustrated with God. I was actually cussing, I'm sorry to say. I don't know if I cussed at him or with him or near him. 
But I'm saying, Lord, you've got to show me. What am I supposed to say? Give me words for these people. I pray like this often and nothing was coming. I couldn't figure out what the order was, what the outline should be. And so I was terrified. Because what I really wanted to do was to get up there and not be the first person in Covenant College Chapel speaker history who passed out before he said a word. (laughs) And more than that, I didn't want to be the first guy who actually, while he was saying words, hit his head on the floor and was too heavy for anybody to carry him out. (laughs) And so... Every single bit and ounce and energy of my fear and my frustration even with God because he wasn't giving me what I wanted on the spot, but was instead demanding the faith to walk up there and, like the Apostle Paul, to open my mouth and trust that words would be given me. All of my fears, all of my frustration, were all directly related to my profound commitment to not look like a fool, to my scaffolding of soul that is constantly trying to convince me that if I can just do what I do really well, if I can just seem like I know what I'm doing, if I can have some expertise, some competency, then I'll matter. And so when I'm afraid of that not coming through, when I'm afraid of that being exposed, that I'm really just a big, really big doofus, then I get terrified. My body physiologically responds in a fight-or-flight kind of reaction. And see, and that's just the latest time that that's happened. I could tell you scores of my... I've been learning my whole life what makes a person. I can remember being a 12-year-old and going to prep school where for the first time in my life I began to realize, wow, we're really poor. I had lived around a lot of people who talked like me, and this is how I talked. And I realized when I got there, man, I'm really a hick. And nobody else's parents have a 1983 Toyota Corolla. And wow, we're not very important. Our house is about 100 times smaller than everybody else's here. And I started figuring out in those days that what makes a person was the way they wore their hair and how well they did in school, and what kind of music they listened to, and whether girls were interested in their interest in them, and what kind of car they drove, and where their family went on spring vacation, and what kind of college they got into, and where they started on the varsity team. I learned in this great meritocracy, which was a little picture of our country, that there was a great equalizer. Even if I didn't come from a prominent family, even if we didn't matter, if I just worked harder than everybody, if you had some talent, you could mean something. You could be adored. You could be heralded and praised, even if you came from meager means. And unfortunately, what I was realizing was what I see everybody realizing everywhere was exactly what the Apostle John, the beloved, is saying is a losing proposition. See, I was learning to try to be important by what I accomplished. I was learning to base my life on how I could get other people to think of me, either by what I had or what I could do. 
And that depended, of course, on being able to hide what I didn't have or what I couldn't do. Involved a lot of posing and therefore lying. And a lot of exhaustion. Because it's hard to be chasing after something that you never actually get. No matter how much you achieve, no matter how good you do in athletics or in talking. I know I just said how good you do. Or how much money you make or what kind of house you live in or what kind of family you're a part of. If this is the basis for who you are, it always leaves you lacking. And so the Apostle John writes these words in his letter where he's painting a picture, a vision of what this new community that, that God in flesh has created the kind of forgiveness, the kind of gracious air that we breathe that makes us a community that embodies love as Christ embodied God. And he does say, though, that all loves are not right or good. There is an ordering of love that must take place. And we're going to look at that for a few minutes as we continue our study of idolatry. He says, don't love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And as we start, it's important to realize, I think, what John might be saying. He is the apostle, after all, known as the one that Jesus loved. He knows something about love. He finds himself stunned by the realization of it where he later says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called sons of God, that God would spill his blood so that he could wash us up and receive us gladly. It's too much to take in, the apostle would say. And yet here he's saying, don't love the world. The same apostle in another place has said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, not to condemn it, to rescue it. And so when he tells us not to love the world, I think it's important to realize when he uses the world in this way, he's not talking about the people of the world, which God loves and we're called to love. He's just said, if you say that you love God and you can't stand the dude that lives across the street from you, you're fooling yourself. You can't say you love God and hate his image. You're in darkness if you say a thing like that. So he's not urging us not to love the people in the world, obviously. When he uses the world this way, I think of it like this system. This configuration in the world. This good old boys and girls club that God is not invited to. If you think of it in our common parlance of social networking on the worldwide interweb, think of it as Facebook that the whole world is connected to But God is not anyone's friend. It's the the way of being in the world that says God don't know nothing and we don't want him mingling his concerns with ours. We know what's best and we're going to do what's best. We're going to pursue what we want. And so John is saying, and he gives specific examples of it, these things have nothing to do with the Father and this kind of love is mutually exclusive. Don't think you can have it both ways. If you love the world's ways, then your love for God is going to diminish and it's ultimately going to recede worse than some of your hairlines. 
Well, that was me. And it's going to go into the background. It's going to diminish altogether. But if the love of God flourishes, then these other things will recede. They can't coexist. Like ebony and ivory. That's a song from the 80s, Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson. Okay, so here's what he says in being specific. He says, everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and he does comes not from the Father, but from the world. And I'd like to look, if we can, for just a minute at the one particular description here, the boasting of what he has and he does. He says, these things don't come from the Father, These things are antithetical to the kind of life that God means for us, the kind of life that would be described as full and what it means to be human and free and joyful. And also, these kind of things are passing away. They're on their way out. And so he says, let's not do this. You can't love like this. The boasting of what he has and what he does. And I realize when I read it, wow, That's what I've been doing my whole life, or at least struggling not to do. And I look around and I say, when we talk about idolatry, this is a major feature of the American way of life, the boasting of what we have and what we do. There is, on The Office, some of you watch from time to time, a character, his name is Andy Bernard. Anybody know where he went to school, where he went to college? Cornell, how do you know? Because every second or third episode, he tells you. He always works it in the conversation that he's Ivy League graduated. Uh, I went to Cornell. Ever heard of it? It never has anything to do with anything. But he needs to make sure that he works it into the conversation. Because it's an attainment that he's proud of. It makes him worth something. I've never heard Sandy Shaw boast of going to Cornell, and he did too. Good job, Sandy. But now you can never say anything about it. (laughs) But it's funny. It's funny to watch Andy Bernard do this because you see how ridiculous it is. And it's really funny until you start realizing that you do it all the time. And I do it all the time. That there's all sorts of inclinations within us to want to posture and pose and self-promote and let people know the things that we have done to look over what we have achieved and to find some special boast in it, to validate ourselves by letting people know our accomplishments, working them in subtly into conversation. I think it might even work itself into the way that we parent our children. David Brooks has talked about this phenomenon in America known as the professionalization of childhood, where there's this conspiracy among parents and communities and schools to at a very early age create overachieving children who are the best so that home is no longer a place, a haven from the rigors of the world. It's a place of anxiety where you're always working to become better, to outperform another. And think of it, parents, is it not the stuff that you worry about? You puzzle over whether you should hold your kid back or not. Why is that? Isn't some of it because you want them to excel? You want them to succeed? You want them to be better than someone else? 
And you're subtly, all of us are subtly from time to time capitulating to this boasting of what we have and do, what we can accomplish. It seeps into our religious lives. Anytime, really, we start to sort of look at the things that we're doing and pointing to them to validate us, to say, I do mean something. You start to feel better than somebody else because you're not addicted like they are, because you at least have your quiet time. You at least tithe. You at least homeschool your children. You at least try a family worship time when it doesn't result in everyone cussing at each other and hitting each other. And in any of these instances... What's likely to be the case is you start to point to what you've done. And you start to feel better than somebody because of what you've done. You can be sure, C.S. Lewis says, that you are not being acted on by God, but by the devil. Anytime our religious life starts to make us feel better than someone else, that's not God. He says, when you get in the presence of God, you'll either feel like a small, dirty object, or you'll forget about yourself altogether. It's much better to forget about yourself altogether. And of course, that's what John is after for us. That's why he tells us not to pursue the world's ways of boasting in what we have and what we do, whether it's religious or whether it's material, whether it's educational, social, relational. There's this, always this danger. How am I going to make myself look like something by what I have achieved? You know, you might have heard me tell this story years ago when Kathy and I were newly married. It was about... We're celebrating our 15th anniversary next week. That's quite an accomplishment for Kathy. It's a lot to put up with. The probably second year of our marriage, we were set to go to seminary. I told the good folks at Covenant Seminary we wouldn't be going there. We would be going to Princeton instead. And I bid them adieu. And I made my plans that we were going to go up there and be with one of my best friends and his wife, and I was very excited. And one day in May, I received a very encouraging letter from my friends at Princeton, because all of my friends always address their correspondence to me like this, Dear Gregory. You need to know for the sake of the story, my name is Gregory Eric Youngblood. You don't know that because you call me Eric, which is what my friends call me. Apparently Princeton's not my friend. Well, so Princeton writes me this letter, Dear Gregory, we delight to inform you that you are not good enough for us. Better luck next life. Love, Princeton. (laughs) At least that's what it felt like. I think the words were more cordial, they were more ironic than that, but they felt like a letter form of a sock in the gut. You are worthless, and we know it. We're just writing you a letter to validate it. And as I think back on that experience and how it hit me, I realized I didn't even need to go to Princeton. I didn't really want to go to Princeton. You know what I wanted? I was going to be a pastor. I wanted at least to have some kind of credibility. I wanted people not to look at me with pity, like, oh, you're a pastor. You couldn't do anything else. I wanted to mean something, and I thought if I went to the right school, at least I could say, well, I went to Princeton. 
like Andy Bernard. And I didn't realize how ridiculous that was. I was eaten up with it. I thought if I could go to the right school, I could mean something. If I had the right degree after my name, it would matter. It would make me something. And God in his kindness, of course, deprived me of that boast. As I've learned systematically that he does, Kierkegaard says in one place, God always creates ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. And so to produce things out of us, sometimes he has to reduce us to nothing. It might be a way for you to start to interpret some of the deprivations that you've met up with, some of the things that you've hoped for and they've been taken away, some of the things you wanted and they weren't given, some of the things you had and they were stripped. It might be God's way of saying, I'd like to be everything for you. I'd like to give you an identity. I don't want you to boast in what you have or do. I don't know what your situation is or if that's why, but I sure do realize there's lots of times in my life where God's been up to something like that. Well, there's also not just the danger of boasting about what you have and do. There's a more subtle kind of thing where we're, we're destroyed by what others have and do. It's kind of the shadow side of this. Has anybody in here ever had a secret disdain for someone that was a trust fund kid? You've had conversations about them, away from them. Oh, they, they just inherited their money. They didn't earn it. Do you realize underneath that bitterness is your deep commitment to being able to boast in what you have and do? Your refusal to live in the realm of God's grace. Your refusal to recognize everybody has everything that they have because of God's grace to them. You didn't pick the family you were born in. Do you think that the fact that you were born in the middle of the second half of the 20th century in the richest country in the history of the earth, the family you got, the educational opportunities you got, the hair color you got, the height, the size, did you pick that? No, you didn't. But oh my, my, oh my, we want to boast in things. And so if someone has what we wish we had, if we feel lessened by that, we can at least minimize them. We can at least try to discount them. That's why we love knocking on Britney Spears and Lindsay Lohan. Anybody who makes it big, it's fun to cut the knees out from them. We wouldn't like it if they did it to us. But anybody who achieves... The shadow side of us being committed to boasting in what we have and do is that we hate those who have and do. You've heard me mention mom porn in here, which is a startling term, and I mean it to be, but it's not what you think it is. I'm talking about this phenomenon that happens. It's not just moms. It's all kinds of people, college students, others who spend their lives reading blogs, reading other people's self-promotion. And here's what happens. You read a blog, perhaps. This has happened to me in pastoral settings, not blogs, but other things. But you read a blog, and it goes something like this. I'm sorry I haven't posted in a while. I've been working with Marcy. She just finished reading Crime and Punishment. She's two. And (laughs) Our four-year-old Jonathan has just learned to recite all of Psalm 119, which is the longest chapter in the Psalms. And our older son just got his Eagle Scout, and I had to instruct him on that. 
And well, last night after preserving all mine and my extended family's jam for the year and knitting a new suit for my husband, <laughs> I just had to go for a 10-mile run before I got back and to nurse my 16th child. And I just haven't had time. Between the hour or two of sleep I get a day and working full-time and being a mother to 100, I just don't have time to blog as much as I'd like. And you read this. You're laughing now, but in the secrecy of your home, you cry. <laughs> you either resent or you think, I'm so worthless. Chris Farley in his interviews with Bruce Willis, such an idiot. <laughs> you look at yourself and you say, I'm not producing like them. What's wrong with me? Why can't I do as much as she does? Why can't I do as much as he does? Why does my life not look as glossy and pretty as theirs does on Facebook? Why are their pictures so much more appealing? And you, because you're committed to boasting in what you have and do, you see the boasts of others in what they're having and doing, and you feel little. And it depresses you and it wraps you up in yourself and you're not able to be content. You're not able to know joy. You're locked up. I've told you, haven't I, for years, totally free of it now, but for years... I hated going to presbytery meetings where all the pastors in our area would get together. And you know why? Because I would go, and this is the time when they would examine, one of the things they would do is examine new ministers and their biblical and theological and historical knowledge, their knowledge of church government and things like this. And what would happen to me, it was a terrible, terrible thing. I would listen to them quizzing these poor saps they were about to kill. And sometimes you'd run across a guy who was so smooth, so smart. They'd ask him a question about prelapsarianism, and he'd say, Why, Ken, that is a very excellent question. I wouldn't have thought to put it that way. Let me tell you. And then he starts to expound this theological treatise, and everybody in the room standing slack-jawed, and they're, and they're so excited that this guy is able to talk like this, and inside, after they give him a standing ovation, I'm sitting here going, oh my gosh, somebody's going to discover that I should be selling shoes. <laughs> I don't know anything. These guys know so much more than I do. I'm such an idiot. I don't know anything about anything. And I would feel horrible, and I would start thinking, maybe I should quit. I don't want to listen to other pastors talk about pastoral ministry because I feel like I'm screwing it up already and every time I hear them, I'm more convinced of it. And then I noticed as time went on, another thing happening. Every now and again, or more often than you'd realize, there'd be somebody up there who didn't seem so sharp. And as the blood was in the water and the sharks started to come to feed, there was this kind of perverse like, okay, I'm at least no more than that guy. <laughs> Just as insidious. But both ways of being reveal what your heart's boasting in. It's wanting somehow or another to nourish its pride. This competitive 
way of being in the world. This anti-God, as C.S. Lewis said, state of mind that is always looking for how I can size other people up. How do I stack up against them? If I'm finding myself worse than them, I feel depressed. If I find myself better than them, I feel secure. And all of you do that all the time, all, the, all over the place. If you don't believe it, if you think of yourself or if you worry about whether you're pretty, just see how you respond if you hear someone else go on and on and on and on about how pretty that other girl is. You listen to somebody, if you're trying to run a business, tell you just how remarkable the business of this other fellow is doing. If you're a pastor and you just hear somebody just raving about what an excellent preacher Andy Stanley is. I know he's excellent. Can't help it. But you know, all such things reveal this kind of boasting of what we have and do. The depression or the pride... The anxiety, the hiding, not wanting anybody to know about us. Because we're afraid we'll be found out. It all reveals this great commitment to being identified, of being evaluated, of having worth based on what we're able to accomplish or what we're able to accumulate. And John says, that doesn't come from the Father. That's not what your Father wants for you. Because it's not really a very pleasurable way to live, is it? It's a horrible way to live. It's an alienating way of living. It makes everybody that you're called to love become your competitor. It makes people that could be the occasion of rejoicing and giving gratitude to God someone who's the occasion of your sorrow because they're more gifted than you are. And so God addresses it this way in Jeremiah This is what the Lord says, and this is how you remedy this kind of boasting, either the boasting of what you have and do or the boasting of what you don't have and don't do. Because you you do realize that, too, that sometimes if we don't have things, we we might boast of what we don't do. I I would never let my kids watch something like that. You ever heard me mention that we don't have cable TV? Oh, yes, only 7,000 times. Sometimes we mention what we wouldn't do and what we don't have as a way of identifying ourselves. In either case, it's all, look at what I'm doing and show me that I'm worth something because of it. And God says this, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man of his strength or the rich man of his riches. If you're going to boast, and boast is a Bible word for glory and for what you trust in. Whatever you point to, to make you seem that you're something, is something that you're boasting in. So if, as a mother, your only consolation at the end of the day is, well, at least none of my kids are dead, and I fed them all organically, I didn't yell at anybody, if you're just sort of seeking consolation in what you were able to accomplish, you're boasting in your accomplishment. If you're looking at sometimes at your estate or your portfolio that you've amassed or the grades that you've been able to achieve, and you say, well, at least I've got that. At least I've done that. You're boasting in that, that you're trusting in that. You're saying that is the thing that makes me something. And God says, don't do that. If you're going to boast, 
If you're going to trust in something, trust in this. Trust that you know me. That you understand and know me. Because you see, God is thoroughly unimpressed with all the things that we boast in. Because you know why? Because he owns everything. Because he gives things to people. So he's not really that impressed. Whether you're really rich or really poor or really smart or really dumb or really pretty or really ugly. He decided a lot of that. And so it feels kind of silly for him, for us to strut around, acting like we're something, with all the stuff or ability or heredity that he gave us. It just doesn't do anything for him. In fact, it repels him. He says, he opposes the proud, he gives grace to the humble. And this is the kind of thing the Apostle Paul talks about all the time. If you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. Think about this, he says to the Corinthians. Think about yourselves when you were called. Not many of you were wise or influential or of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. The things that are not to nullify the things that are. And you know why he did this? You know why he chose us? To put an end to boasting. He says it in Ephesians 2. That... We were formerly the objects of wrath. And that God looks down on us because he sees beyond the facade of whether you're winning national championships or whether your school's closing. Whether you're really wealthy or drawing unemployment. He sees beyond all of these things. And in his eyes, everyone's equalized. They're defunct images of God who need to be rescued and recovered. Objects of wrath, Paul says, who God in his kindness spoke life into. He says, it's by grace you have been saved. By faith. And this is not from you. It's a gift. So that no one can boast. One of the most freeing things that happens in a person is you start to realize the people around me are all in the same boat as I am. We're all desperate people needing God's unwarranted, unsecurable by our actions, grace. When you start to realize that, I'm the recipient of grace, you're the recipient of grace, you can start to praise other people for the good you see in them instead of being threatened by them. You can stop obsessing about yourself and trying to pretend you're better than you are. I would love for somebody to write on a blog, went to bed, Cried myself to sleep. Can't believe what a failure I am. Think my kids hate me. I think I'm raising the devil. (laughs) I don't know how to do anything. I'm not sure how I'll make it through the day tomorrow. Does anybody ever write that on a blog? Oh, it would be awesome. The apostle says, the only thing I've learned to boast in is my weaknesses. I've learned to boast in the things that let Jesus' power radiate like off the sun on a, the metal of a car. I want, if I'm going to boast, if I'm going to build an identity on something, I'm going to say, look at all these weak places in my life. Look at all these defunct places. Look at all these places where I don't know what to do. And look how my Savior loves me anyway. Look how my Savior shines His light anyway. Look how when I don't know what to do, He walks with me. Oh, it'll make you a gracious person. 
If we're a community that boasts about what we have and do, we won't, we won't share with each other. We'll always be competing with each other. We won't be able to help each other. We won't be able to praise each other. We won't be able to compliment each other. We won't be able to comfort each other. I close with this story. You may have heard this story. Skip Ryan was a man, a pastor in our denomination, pastor of Park City's Presbyterian Church, which I believe is probably the biggest PCA church. Surely one of the wealthiest as well. He was a Harvard-graduated fellow, former moderator of the General Assembly, well-adored, amazing pastor, amazing preacher, who... Gave a confession and testimony to our General Assembly three years ago after having to step down from his post for his addiction to painkillers. See, what happened is he had a legitimate prescription for something that had gone wrong, and, but the pressure of his life, the sense that he had to keep something going, that he had to keep showing up, and he had to keep being charming, he had to keep working through the pain, It made him little by little start to think, well, it won't hurt to take one more, more. And he said, I realized when my life came crashing down and I had to resign from my church and everybody knew about me, I realized that my life had been built on two premises. One, I can control your opinion of me through my performance. And two, the fact that I can control your opinion of me through my performance is all that matters. He realized, he said, Jesus started slipping away from me. That's what John says will happen. If you live to control others by your performance, Jesus will slip away. He said, what I came to realize was this, what you think of me is none of my business. What I think you think of me can kill me. The only thing that matters, he says, is what Jesus thinks of me. Now that can sound like pious talk. Especially if you're not feeling the desperation of wondering who you are inside. Of wondering if you matter. Of wondering if your life counts. Of wondering whether you're just a piece of junk. Wondering if you're going to have what it takes Wondering if you're going to fail your family somehow, if you're going to fail your children somehow, or if you're going to have what it takes. And what our Savior says, don't even get involved in the boasting of what you have and do. If you're going to boast in something, boast that you belong to me. Boast that you are the recipient of my beneficiary kindness, of my beneficence, that you are the one who has received most when you deserved it least. What is your only comfort in life and in death is a Heidelberg first question and answer that I've tried to bring home to myself over and over and over again when I find myself stuck and worrying about whether I'm doing it right or not, whether I'm succeeding or not, whether other people are better than me or not, trying to refasten my mind on this reality. My only comfort in life and death is not how much money I have in the bank. 
And it's not how well you guys think I'm doing at preaching or running this church. I know the pressure like you do. One great Sunday just makes me scared I won't be able to do it again. One full big day at church, I'm just nervous about how I'm going to keep it up. But then I find this solace that I am not my own. I don't belong to me. I belong to my faithful Savior, body and soul, and in life and in death, who has fully paid for all my sins and has rescued me from the tyranny of the devil. He watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head apart from his will. In fact, all things, I must assure myself, work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Because you belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures us of eternal life and makes us wholehearted in our willingness and our readiness from now on to live for him. If you can know the comfort, and it's available for anybody for the taking, even today. If you don't know how to belong to him, come talk to me after the service. There's amazing comfort in knowing It isn't what you've done or do or what you haven't done or what you convince people that you're doing. It's what your Savior has done and He has said, I want you. Now find comfort in that. Amen.